So you'll remember, many of you will remember uh, on December 26th, the day after Christmas in 2004, uh, in the middle of the Indian Ocean was the third largest earthquake that has ever have ever been recorded, uh, at least since we've been able to record the size of earthquakes, and it set off a tsunami uh, that ended up having waves that were uh, a wall that were literally 100 feet high, and they came in, and it landed in Thailand and Sri Lanka and Indonesia, and it killed, in just a matter of hours, 230,000 people lost their lives in such a painful and tragic way. And it was the topic of conversation. I remember it going on and on and just asking. There were so many questions, so many scientific questions and existential questions and theological questions that were going on during that time. And I remember I was listening to an interview with an NPR interview with, in fact, NPR went and set out to talk to all kinds of different ministers of different faiths. And they were interviewing a Christian pastor. His name is Dr. John Piper. And he's from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And they were interviewing him. And it's a phenomenal, if you, I would encourage you to Google uh, NPR, John Piper interview. You can get there quickly and, and hear that it's a 30-minute interview. And I would love to be able to unpack everything that was said. But at, toward the end of that interview, she was trying to, the interviewer was trying to ask some uh, questions and try to get perspective on how different faiths see these things. And one of the things that she said, the, the, the interviewer made a remark that she had interviewed a reformed or kind of a liberal-leaning Jewish rabbi uh, about um, that's the, the tsunami. And she asked the rabbi, could God have stopped that wave? And the rabbi said to her, and she's recalling in this interview with his Christian pastor, the rabbi said, I do not believe God could have stopped that wave. I would not charge God with that crime. And that is a profound statement because it brings up some incredibly difficult questions about the power and the nature of who God is, right? It's one that we're asking all the time. Anytime we see tragedy, not just the ones that happen out there, but sometimes the ones that happen that are really close to home. We're asking that question today, and we feel that, whether it's December 26, 2004, or 2022, as we've been looking at this crazy pandemic and all of the crazy things that have been going on. But there, have been, there are people asking that question in Jesus' day as well, and that is, if God is truly good, why is there suffering? If God is really good, why is there suffering? Why do bad things happen, especially to the, the good folks out there? You might even put yourself in that category, right? Maybe you're, you or your friend, or your granddad, or maybe anyone of us that have, where you've walked through some incredible, difficult hardships. And even though it seemed like you were good and you couldn't have an, you didn't have an understanding for it. Why was it that you went through that kind of pain? And we can again point to the last two years where we're coming up on about a million COVID-related deaths in America, 6.23 million across the globe, and not interested in any conspiracy theories about any of those kinds of things because I know all that exists out there. And politics aside, there are just people who have died, and many prematurely, and it hurts, and it's sad. 
But if you actually look, if we're actually honest and we start backing up throughout human history, we get to see that what we even experience now is really a drop in the bucket of suffering that this world has seen in the past. If you go back to the year 1900, from the year 1900 to the year 1977, more than 300 million people died from smallpox. And it stopped, of course, because of... uh, In 1977, they found a vaccine for smallpox, and that's not a political commentary on vaccines, I swear. Please, let's stay away from that, okay? But it's just the truth. So I'm not pro or against, I'm just just letting you know. 77-year window, 300 million people died from smallpox. And if you go even further back than that, for those of you that paid attention in history class just a little bit, in the year 1347, from the year 1347, to the year 1351, just a four-year span, it's estimated 25 million people died from the plague. 75, that was just in Europe. Likely the number is somewhere between 75 and 100, 150 million people across the earth died. Tragedy's been happening for a long time. We've seen some of the hardships here, but it's, it's not a pretty picture if we're just being honest about the realness of life. So it's incredibly natural to ask this question, God, where are you? Why don't you step in and stop these tragedies? It's a question that has caused many people to begin to even deconstruct their faith, to try to figure out and get to the answer, and it seems painful and harmful when we are wondering in the midst of suffering where is God, and, and, and maybe even more so, as I mentioned, just those personal places, those experiences that, of injustice that have hit home for every one of us, you know, that divorce that came out of left field that you didn't see coming, you didn't plan for it. No one has ever stood at the altar. I've done a bunch of weddings. Not one couple has ever stood thinking, uh, well, this will probably end in divorce. No one was ever looking for that, but that often happens. Or if you've ever had to bury a child or a spouse or you had a job loss that you didn't see coming from a million miles away, and those are the kinds of moments where it feels like we need some answers. And and maybe even more than just answers, we need comfort. You need to understand, right? That's what we really want is some understanding. We want to be able to put our feet on a rock when those storms in life take place. And so here's what we're going to find really comforting is that we serve a God that has clearly spoken to this, not even left a doubt. In fact, we follow a God who has not only spoken, but he cares deeply about these experiences that we've all had, those places of suffering, pain, and injustice. And so what I want to do is I want to just talk to Jesus, straight to Jesus. I want to have a conversation this morning with Jesus we get to have this conversation with Jesus in Luke chapter 13. I want to set this up before we read this together. Jesus has been literally preaching to thousands of people. And every once in a while in the middle of his teaching, they're peppering him with questions. They're peppering him and then his disciples are peppering him questions and they're just trying to understand. And he's turning the world upside down as he did with his teaching. It was so powerful. It was so transformative what he was doing. And they came to this moment at Luke 13, and they're asking this new question of Jesus. And here's what they say. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? 
because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Now, of course, I know what you're thinking, which is, can we get this verse on a t-shirt somehow for us to be able to have? No, we walk around, just kidding. It's a tough scripture. It's a tough one. And so let's unpack it. We're just gonna take a minute to unpack this and just begin to ask the question, what's happening here? One, there are people that are wanting some understanding of these events that have happened, right? There's a one question that is being posed about some evil that has been done to some people. And then Jesus himself brings up another instance in which a tragedy takes place that no one saw coming, just a senseless accident, right? These are two real life scenarios, both harm, evil that was done to us, and then also those, that thing that happens that kind of comes out of nowhere, that senseless, painful tragedy. And so the, the first question is this moment where Pilate has taken and he's actually assaulted these Jews that were from Galilee. And we don't know why the scripture doesn't tell us. We look in churches, we don't know a lot about this event, but they had come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to make their sacrifice in the temple to the Lord. They were accosted in some way. They were taken their blood or they were killed. Their blood was mingled with the very... Uh, uh, a sacrifice they meant to bring unto the Lord for the atonement of their sin. They came, their blood was mingled, and it was, of course, a desecration of their lives. It was a desecration of the temple, a desecration of their offering to the Lord. And the people want to know why. What do you think about this? Why did this happen? And it actually seems like they're ginning Jesus up for a fight a little, a, a little bit because where is Jesus from? He's from the Galilee. They're saying, hey, these are your people. And they've been mutilated and taken advantage of. And so what do you think about that? Then Jesus turns and he gives this very real present second scenario where this Tower of Siloam, which is the right over the pool of Bethesda, which is, by the way, that's where all the, those that were hurt, wounded, had been crippled or were invalid and were unable to walk. They were trying to get into the pool when the waters were stirred for healing. And so uh, this tower falls tragically and it kills 18 people. And so I want to look at the response. And if at the very uh, beginning of this response, it, maybe at first glance, it might feel like, seem like it's a little bit unfeeling. But what is true is that Jesus' response here is so loving and so incredibly compassionate and merciful because it gets to the heart of why we see suffering in this life. And so here's what Jesus says. He says, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners because this tragedy happened to them? Do you think that they deserved to suffer this tragedy? Or do you think that those who were killed in that accident when that tower fell on those poor people, do you think that they deserved that punishment more than anyone else in Jerusalem? His first remark is just to turn the table and say, when we see tragedy, let me tell you what, first and foremost, the church, the people of God, we don't make judgments against what's happening. 
We don't sit and stand and point the finger and make judgments. I'm going to be honest with you. The world often expects the church to stand that way. It happens all the time. I remember when Hurricane Katrina came through and ravaged New Orleans, and I remember there were prominent church leaders that said that God is judging New Orleans for its sin, standing with a heavy hand to judge. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, I want you to hear this. Don't think for two seconds that those who were hurt in these circumstances had any more reason to experience brokenness than anyone else. Not in any way, shape, or form. And so what does he call them to do? He says, I don't want you to look at this with eyes of judgment. What I want you to do is look on this with eyes of compassion. And as he says that, he says, if you'll look on this with eyes of compassion, then what, when we see hurt and pain and suffering, and here's what we ought to do. We repent. We turn our heart to the Lord. Here's what he wants to say. Why does he say repent? Because he knows this. Sin is what causes suffering in this world. And hear this. All of creation is marred by it. It's not just our particular sins. I think there's a tendency to want to point out particular sins. Well, if they just did this, they wouldn't experience that. Or if that just happened, they wouldn't. And what God is saying here, what Jesus is trying to say is, sin has come into this world and it has affected everything across the spectrum. All of life has been marred by this thing called sin. Because of sin, we live in a fallen world, and I don't want you to miss the significance of that, that we live in a fallen, broken world. In fact, we just sang, let heaven come, because what's clear is that sin has made this place not heaven. We were meant for heaven. It's what God's design was, right open relationship with God. But sin came in through Adam and has come into the world and has marred and broken. Everything is, gave, gave distance between us. In fact, what the scripture says made, made us enemies of God or we turned to our hearts and we said, we want to do our own thing. We don't want to do God's way. But not only that, it's broken all of creation. And so that everything we see and experience on planet Earth across the spectrum is a taste of eternity in some way, either the good or the bad, right? The wonders of the planet Earth, the goodness that's seen in mankind, right? That's a taste of things that are meant to be. It's why we sing, let heaven come. When we've experienced goodness, it's a taste. But guess what? Heaven is infinitely greater. It's infinitely greater. But conversely, the evil that we see, pain and suffering, that is a taste of an eternity without God. It's a glimpse into what utter separation, if you will, hell is to be without him. Are there times where our sin will bring difficulty on our lives? Of course, absolutely we know that. We understand. We've all experienced the nature of consequences. But there are times where we suffer, not because we did something or because we failed to do something. We did it because this world is messed up. We experience that, I'm sorry, because this world is messed up, because it's broken. And hear this. When we see suffering in this life, we don't judge and we don't point fingers but what Jesus is saying is, 
let our hearts be broken. Let our hearts be broken. And to take the moment to turn from sin and turn our hearts, right? What is repentance? Not just to not do sin anymore, but what? To turn our heart to the Father who's ready to welcome us in. The one who is able to remove eternal suffering. He rescues us, right? Suffering is trying to help us see something that there is, hear this, there is a death that is much, much worse than the ones that we see with our eyes here. Some of the hardships that we experience. There's a spiritual death which Jesus came to rescue all of us from. And when we see the pain and suffering that happens in this life, the point is to point our hearts, not in judgment, but in humility to say, God, show us what it looks like to be saved, to be rescued. So what he means is that there's suffering in this life that's painful, but there's a suffering that is even greater. It's the one that goes on for an eternity. And the Lord's opening the, his arms to say, come, you don't have to have that suffering. And so Jesus wants our hearts to get oriented to that one thing that is worse, is the worst than any other tragedy that's ever happened in this life, right? It's the, when we, those that were made in God's image where we turn from the Father and we turn away from him and we move towards eternal suffering that sin brings. And so he, Jesus is saying, listen, when you see hardship and pain, let those sufferings draw your heart to a connection with him that the Father wants to have with you. That's what Jesus was calling for in that conversation. Romans chapter eight says, Paul says, listen, I, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, hear this, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, whatever suffering we experience here, it will pale in comparison to the glory that God has for anyone that will put their trust in him. And that the point of our suffering is to produce a longing and a groaning to be set free from the injustices of this life. But there is only one answer to that that can forever make our hearts well. And that is Jesus. God's present in those moments and he's calling us back to trust him above all to be saved and to be healed and to be made whole and to be right with him. But not, listen, he's not only just present to turn our heart from that place, but hear this, church, he's not just, he's not just there, he's overcome. He isn't just present with a plan He's overcome it as well. It's what Jesus says in, in John 16, 33. What does he say? In this world, you will have tribulation. 
He wasn't saying like, get ready for a horrid life. That's not what he's saying. He's just being honest. In this world, there's gonna become moments where this is hard and difficult. In this world, we're gonna have trouble. He's not, he didn't just speak of the reality of the world. He spoke of this reality. That's, there's a reality that's greater than the fallen world. There's something that's above, and he's calling us into it. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but what? Take heart, have courage. Why? Because I have overcome the world. I'm over all. Jesus isn't just there to say, hey, there's sin in the world and it's sad, and so I hope you can deal with it. He's saying, even in the midst of your troubles, let your heart be free because I've overcome for you. I'm there with you in the moment. I'm meeting with you. See, when you and I are in Christ, no matter how bad it gets, what we we can always know is that he has overcome is now working for us and our good on our behalf. And God shows us over and over and over again how faithful he is to us, even in the storms, even through the hardships, no matter what. There's a story that uh, if you got to grow up in church, you probably heard about a young man named Joseph. Genesis starts in Genesis chapter 37 and goes through chapter 50, but he doesn't have, he's a sweet young kid. He doesn't have a lot of self-awareness and he's a little bit arrogant and it kind of goes wrong for him and his brothers are jealous of him and they hate him and they conspire to kill him, but then they just decide to throw him in a hole and sell him off as a slave. I can't even imagine. I mean, this kind of, it can kind of come off as a Bible story, but just be honest with you. Uh, we all had those siblings where you would have the sibling fight, right? And you're just like, oh, him, I hate you. Right? You had, did y'all had that, you know, with your sibling? Y'all are looking at me like you've never had a sibling fight. Whatever. Okay. You had a sibling fight, right? At least it happens in our house. I did with my brother, right? And you could be so frustrated. Okay. Can we just wipe that away? This, these are brothers of a young man who said, We're so, we hate you so much. We want to see you dead. And we'll sell you into slavery. Which, by the way, being sold into slavery still happens today. Being sold into slavery still happens today. So let's let the weight of that just hit for a minute. Sold into slavery, spends time as a servant in a home, is accused of a crime that he did not commit, thrown into jail, and he's there years, years, done nothing wrong, sold into slavery, years in jail. That doesn't sound like a sweet story. This doesn't feel like a cool God moment. This feels hard and difficult. But what does God do? Under the sovereign hand of God, Joseph is exalted. He ends up becoming prime minister of Egypt. He's second in command. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. If you've not had a chance to read it, it's a true, this is a true account of what happened in this man's life. And, and because of the role that he plays, thousands and thousands and thousands of lives are saved because of his covering, including his own family. And his brothers come and they finally find out that Joseph is not dead, that he's no longer in prison, that all the other things they thought, they can't believe he's alive and when he's standing over them as second in command of Egypt and they are before him, 
so sorry and so broken for what they had done to him. What does he say? You, does he, does he lean in and, and with hate for all of the pain and misery they caused him? What does he say? Genesis 50. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What was his heart condition? Not how dare God allow me to go through years of pain. What he said is God had a greater purpose that we could not see in the moment, but he was working for our good. God wasn't waiting in the corner on the suffering. He's working actively to bring us right through it. That when life is hard and we experience hurt and pain and suffering, the tendency is to be hurt that God's not breaking in, but hear that because it feels unjust. And we can't see, but God does because even hear this, in the greatest injustices, God's always working for our good, always. If you're in Christ, he has overcome. Therefore, no matter what, he's working for your good. So what it says in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? We got to hear that. Not only is he, of course, working for our good, but he's the one that comes right into the middle of our suffering. He's the God, right? Let me tell you, if... Uh, if you've ever wondered the, the truest, deepest reason to be able to trust and worship and follow Jesus above every other God in this world, it's because he is the one God who came into our suffering to take on the righteous wrath of God against sin, and he took it on himself so that every one of us could be made alive, meaning he's, he killed the spiritual death himself, so that you and I never have that, never. And the most unjust suffering that's ever occurred in all of human history was when that perfect, spotless, unstained God came in the flesh and he laid down his life for us by suffering for us the death we all deserved. You want to want, if you wonder how God feels about suffering, as if he's off in the distant, seeing if we can figure out, he came right into the middle of it and said, I'll take on the suffering for you. That's how intense and intent and intentional that God is with our suffering. He comes right into the middle of it. He doesn't leave us alone in it. And it wasn't some kind of, if you know, we get to read the story, it wasn't some kind of comic superhero kind of thing. When he came in, he experienced the deep, deep pain that every one of us have felt. Matthew 27, at that ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Elahi, Elahi, Lema Sabachthani. Sorry for my poor Greek or Aramaic. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know if you've ever wondered what's happening in that moment. Because there have been many that have stood up to death with courage. But what we see here is the suffering of Jesus, true suffering. And is he losing faith in the moment? Without question, no way. 
He's saying, my God, my God. He knew who his father was. But what was he experiencing? Maybe the worst suffering that there is to experience in the human experience, and that is abandonment. To be abandoned in that moment. Isn't that the hardest thing is when you feel like you're alone? Because Jesus' death was grueling without question, three hours of suffocating and bleeding out on a cross. But he's showing us here that what was really agonizing to him is the one who had had an eternal connection, relationship with the Father, eternally existed with the Father, perfect relationship. The Father had now turned his back on him and judged him for our sin, taking our sin on him and giving us his life, abandoned and alone. Listen, Jesus knows the injustice of innocent death and abandonment more than any of us will ever know, ever. But hear this. When he came out of the grave, alive and victorious, not only did he give us his life, but what else did he promise? What else does he promise for those that find themselves in suffering? Revelation 21, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. I'm making all things new. I love what uh, Tim Keller puts in his book, uh, The Reason for God. He says that he puts it this way in Revelation 21. This is quote, we do not see human beings being taken out of this world into heaven, but rather heaven coming down and cleansing and renewing and perfecting this material world. The secular view of things, of course, sees no future restoration after death or history. And Eastern religions believe we lose our individuality and return to the great all soul. So our material lives in this world are gone forever. Even religions that believe in a heavenly paradise consider it a consolation for the losses and pain of this life and all the joys that might have been. But the biblical view of things is resurrection, not a future that is just a consolation for the life that we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but it will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. Meaning every wrong, every injustice, every misunderstanding, every false and hurtful thing, every abuse and wrong treatment, every ounce of it will be redeemed and restored for those who are in Christ. Every ounce. It's who God is and it's what he does. I'll ask our team to come up and just finish with a story. It was, we got to share this a couple of years ago, um, but in 2010, uh, my wife was pregnant for a third time and we were so elated. And so we go to the doctor's appointment and get our first look at this sweet baby only to find out that it wasn't one baby, but it was two. We were freaking out because Megan had had dreams. She'd been having dreams that we were going to have two. <laughs> I always thought she was a little bit crazy, just to being honest. But she had a prophetic inside. The Lord was speaking to her. And all of a sudden, we're having twins. And then in 10 seconds, 
Our world was shattered because one of the twins had died. And we went from being on air in the clouds to devastated in a moment. And I have to just be honest. I can't and I don't fully understand why we didn't get to have that child. And honestly, in my heart of hearts, just for those of you who know Elizabeth, our third child, uh, I think the only thing better in this world besides one Elizabeth is two of them around, candidly. Was that an injustice that we lost that child? Yes, that's an injustice. It's wrong. It's not okay. But you know what's even truer? God knows what's best for us. And he knows things we cannot know for ourselves. And he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And because of him, hear this, because of him, we have another kid that we get to meet in heaven. And I don't know if it's going to look like Elizabeth or if it's a boy. We don't have any idea. But I can't wait for that. Some of the hardest suffering we experience, God makes it all okay. But we got to trust him. He isn't the one who stays at a distance. He comes into the suffering and says, I've got purpose. I see. I see things you can't see. Can you trust me? And that's the call. It takes away the sting of suffering. and gives us hope. If we'll trust him. thank you that we're not on our own. We thank you that you heal and you have overcome every injustice, every hardship, every wound. You love us and you meet us in that place and we can trust you. We thank you, Lord, for this moment to reflect and to see you high and lift it up. If you've experienced a hurt or a hardship, would you just re-invite? Maybe you've invited the Lord into it. Would you re-invite him into that place? Might be something you see across the globe. Might be something deeply personal. But Lord, we just choose to invite you in to see that, Lord, even though this world is deeply broken from sin, you made a way. And you saved us from a spiritual death that we could not save ourselves from, and we trust you. We can't wait to see you face to face. But until then, Lord, come and have victory. Come and speak peace and life. Would you ask him for peace and life? Lord, would you bring healing and wholeness? Would you ask him for healing and wholeness? Would you bring restoration? We'll have some prayer partners available here in just a moment as we conclude. If you want to just pray with someone about anything going on in your world, we'd love to pray with you or pray with each other. I'm going to pray just a blessing over us as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Jesus, the name is above every other name. We pray.